If you believe that there's a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that, uh, well, it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward. How much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? Good morning. Well, I haven't been up here for a while, so this is fun. It wasn't fun first service. I had a, a panic attack a bit, so that's kind of God's way of reminding me that, you know what, uh, I'm in charge, you're not, so just, you know, be aware of that. So anyway, we are going to go to Romans chapter 5. So I invite you to go there in your Bibles, whether you have an app, uh, whether you have a printed copy, which I always love printed copies because I can write in them, or whether you're using the Bible in the pew in front of you. And specifically, we're going to look at Romans chapter 5, verse 8. And we're going to call this the greatest sacrifice. Now, before I launch into this message, I just was thinking as Don was sharing about the April 1st um, Easter potluck, Easter egg hunt. I think that's age discrimination. I want to hunt eggs too. I don't know about any of the rest of you, but anyhow, but they never let me. I don't know why. So um, this is a very, very powerful passage of scripture. And I'm not just going to talk to us this morning about Romans 5.8. I'd actually like us to look at the surrounding verses, beginning at verse 6 all the way down to verse 11. Before we do that, though, I wanted to share with you a true story. So let me do that, please. On January 12, 1943, Tom Sullivan, so this is during World War II, Tom Sullivan was getting ready to leave for work when three men in Navy uniforms approached him. One said, the senior officer, I have some news for you about your boys. Which one? Tom asked. I'm sorry, the officer said, all five. See, what had happened was Tom and Arlita Sullivan's five sons all died on the same ship. Now, that's not supposed to happen in the Navy. They purposely do not post members of the same family on the same ship. But these five young men had all asked to serve together on the light cruiser named Junoa. And what happened was the ship was struck by a Japanese torpedo and sank in less than 45 seconds. Three of the sons, Joe, Frank, Matt Sullivan, went down with the ship. Al and George, the two remaining sons, died later when the rescue of the survivors, and there weren't many, but that rescue was delayed. And you can see there a picture on the screen of these five brothers. Can you imagine the overwhelming pain, grief, and sorrow that these parents and their surviving sister Genevieve must have felt? What an incredibly difficult sacrifice that this one family made for our country. But yet, the sacrifice of Jesus, the Son of God, 
for our salvation was even greater, as we're going to see. It is the greatest sacrifice. Now, before we take a look at our verses for this morning, let me just review briefly with you the two previous messages, all right, as we continue this series on the Romans Road. First of all, two weeks ago, Pastor Daniel shared primarily from Romans chapter 3, verse 23, where we are reminded that all of us, without exception, all of us have fallen short of God's glory, his standard. Uh, We're all in trouble, according to Romans chapter 3, verse 23. And then last week, Pastor Mark shared from Romans 6, 23, and that passage says that all of us deserve death, which is, biblically speaking, eternal separation from God as a certain payment or wage for our sin, unless we accept God's free gift of salvation in Jesus, his son. Now, the main idea for what we're going to learn about this morning is this. God's love for us is forever proved by Jesus' sacrifice for us. Have you ever wondered if God cares? Look at what his son did for us. Now, there's going to be two parts to this message. The first part, we'll call this kind of the wide angle shot, all right? We're looking at verses 6 through 11. We're going to see the richness of our salvation in Christ. Now, in order for us to appreciate how rich that salvation is, we have to look very carefully as well at our condition before our salvation. Because unless we realize the desperate plight that we're in, we're not going to realize the tremendous gift that God provides for us in Jesus. And then after we do that wide-angle shot, then we're going to zoom in specifically at chapter 5, verse 8. We'll call that the demonstration of God's love in Christ, all right? Read with me now as as we take a look at Romans chapter five, verses six through 11. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we have been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So let's look at the richness of our salvation in Christ. First of all, there's four descriptions given up to us about what we were like before we came to Jesus. The first thing, beginning at verse six, Paul says we were ungodly. We deserved nothing good from God. But that's the same thing that was also true about Abraham. 
Abraham in so many ways, who is the father of our faith, whose righteousness, whose righteous, righteousness was credited to him because of his faith. We're told in Romans 3, 5, that God justifies, that means declares innocent, the ungodly, all right? And we were definitely ungodly before Jesus. We were also, according to Romans 6, we were weak, or some of your Bibles will say powerless. That Greek word is translated elsewhere in the New Testament as sick. When I was working on these notes earlier this week, it came to my mind when I used to read comic books as a kid, and in the back of the comic books, a lot of times they would have this advertisement for a guy named Charles Atlas. Now, some of us remember these, okay? Basically, in the ad, you'd see this little 95-pound guy, you know, usually getting sand kicked in his face, you know? And the idea is, okay, you may feel like or you may physically be you, okay? You're this weakling, but if you buy this ad, invest some money, you can look like Charles Atlas, and then you'd see this big muscular guy doing this, okay? The point is, Salvation speaking, we were never going to become Charles Atlas. We were weak. We were powerless. There was nothing that we could do to make ourselves right before God. All right? And then down in verse 8, verse that we'll look at more in depth a little bit later, we're told that we are sinners. That was a Jewish person's favorite term to refer to pathetic, wicked Gentiles, sinners. The problem is this. According to Romans chapter 3, verse 8, all of us, both Jews and Gentiles, we're all under sin. In the case of the Jews, it was the fact that, as Paul explains earlier in Romans, they couldn't keep God's law. Some 613 commandments they couldn't keep. So they stand under God's judgment. And in the case of Gentiles, well, Gentiles, that's most of us, we had two problems. First of all, the knowledge that we could get from God about creation, because basically all of creation displays the glory of God, but that knowledge, as Paul writes in Romans 1, was suppressed. Think of it like holding down a spring so it can't do what a spring is supposed to do. We suppress that knowledge of God. We denied God. And then if that wasn't bad enough, God put basically an understanding of what's right and wrong within us. We call that a conscience, and we ignore our conscience. Which means we both, both, uh, both Jews and Gentiles both stand under sin. And then the most difficult word of all, describing us before Jesus, is in verse 10. We were enemies, enemies of God. Can anything be worse than being the enemy of an all-powerful, absolute being? I can't think of anything. You know, uh, back in the 1740s, there was a preacher by the name of Jonathan Edwards that 
His church became the beginning of what was later called the Great Awakening when literally thousands and thousands of people came to Jesus. And much of that work was done as a result of a message. It's called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and you can still find it and read it, but it doesn't make easy reading, guys. As a matter of fact, it was scary. And Edwards, who could not basically preach like what I'm doing here, he'd have to read his message and he'd kind of have his face buried in his notes. But as he read this, people began to respond and got very, very emotional because one of the things that Edwards was saying was that um, he used the illustration. He said, look, guys, we're like this little spider, okay, that is hung over a fire that if it's not careful, if the web gives way, the single filament gives way, the spider drops into the fire. He said that's a picture of us, our present condition, unless we come to Christ. And people got so scared listening to that, they literally started climbing out of the pews up the pillars for fear they were gonna drop into that place. So, we were sinners, we were enemies, we were ungodly. And then there's also two descriptions that Paul gives in verse seven of what we were not apart from Jesus. The first thing, we're not righteous. Now Paul mentions here that, okay, probably nobody is gonna give their life for a righteous person. A righteous person is somebody who keeps all of God's commandments, all right? Now there's a big problem for us on this, and that is what James writes in his letter, he says this, for whoever keeps the whole law, now remember it's 613 commandments in the law, whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles at just one point is guilty about breaking all of it. Remember when Tyler was up here sharing about going through the 30 hours before he could take his driving test? Do you guys remember how nervous you were taking your driving test? I do. It was over 45 years ago. I still remember. I had to do it at F Street. That was the only place you could do it back then. And I remember thinking, if I make one mistake, that's it. I got to do it all over again. Problem with righteousness, none of us are righteous. We've all made a mistake. We've all screwed up. And then Paul says, you know what? Maybe somebody would be willing to die for someone who is good. Now, problem with that is none of us are really good either. Because if we simply look at our hearts, as it says in Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 9 and 10, The scripture says the heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, examine the mind and the heart to give to each person according to his way. That's good news. According to what his actions deserve. Now, the bottom line is apart from God's intervention, we are in big trouble. But, remember some time ago, Pastor Daniel preached a message, and his text was simply, but God. 
I bring that up because God responds to our problem. He took the initiative. Look at again those first couple of verses, verses six, seven, and eight. Notice how many times it says, Jesus died for us. Three or four times. You see, what happened was Jesus substituted himself for us. The penalty for our sin that should have fallen upon us, Jesus took our place. As it says, I believe in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, he took the curse of the law upon himself because we could not keep God's law. That, by the way, Jesus taking what should have fallen on us, that's called propitiation. It means he appeased or satisfied God's hatred for sin because God cannot tolerate sin. He took God's animosity, God's hatred for sin by offering himself. And by the way, he was upfront about this during his ministry. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, he tells his disciples and us this, for even the Son of Man, Jesus' favorite title for himself, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus dies for us, and then God the Father, these scriptures tell us he took three steps to save us. First of all, according to verse 6, he sent Jesus his son at the right time to save us. Galatians 4.4 4 says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman, born under the law. Fullness of time, what does that mean? Well, for one thing, it means that the Old Testament basically came to a close around 400 B.C. The New Testament and Jesus' arrival does not happen until over 400 years later. So for 400 years, there is no further revelation of God. And even though the Jews were writing books at this time, they were a far cry from God-inspired scripture. Not even in the same category. And then also through the world, there was this language that spread throughout much of the Near East and throughout much of the Mediterranean world. And that language was Greek. So for the first time ever in history, you could know one language, and using that language, you could preach the gospel literally to millions of people. That had never happened before. So God basically was working situations to where at the right time Jesus came. Secondly, verse 9, he provided justification for us via Jesus' blood. That means all who by faith accept Jesus' sacrifice for their sin are forever, forever cleansed of all sin. The gospel in a nutshell is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. It says there, God made him, that's Jesus, who had no sin, 
to be sin for us. Another way to translate that, to be a sin offering for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Now, those of you that have ever played golf know about mulligans, don't you? There used to be a driving range over where these apartments now exist, over by the overpass of Manor and Union. There was a driving range there. And I remember back in high school, my dad had given me his old set of golf clubs and I went there and I got a bucket of balls and I was going to practice before I went out and played golf. And you know what I discovered? I discovered that every single one of those golf balls was defective. Because as I would line up for the shot, and I'm thinking in my mind of some great golfer at that time, like a Jack Nicklaus or an Arnold Palmer, we would think today of like a Tiger Woods or McElroy, one of those guys, I would line up and I would hit the ball and the ball would not go this, the ball would defective. I needed lots and lots of mulligans. Mulligan is basically, for the rest of you, it's a do-over. Okay, it's like you ignore the shot and you do it over. The point of that illustration is this. In Jesus, we never have to worry about do-overs because every sin we ever committed before we came to Jesus and every sin that we commit after we come to Jesus as long as we confess that sin to him and ask his forgiveness, it's all under the blood of Christ. No do-overs. He died to cleanse us of every single sin. And the third thing that the Father did for us is in verses 10 and 11. And he actually, Paul uses the word, I think, three or four times. He reconciled us. Now, what's the big deal of that? Reconciliation, guys, deals with relationships. And the deal is this. God did not just simply want to take away our sins. God took away our sins so that we could then have a relationship. We could have a friendship with God. The almighty creator of this vast universe that we have never yet found the end of wants a relationship with each and every one of us. That's why Jesus said to his disciples and to us the night before he went to the cross, he said, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends which is what Jesus was going to do shortly. He protected his disciples in that garden so they were not arrested. He protected them. He went to the cross. He died for them. And guys, he died for us because he wanted us to be reconciled to himself. Now, let's look at verse 8. This is the zoom shot. We're going to focus at verse 8, all right? Here it is again in the New American Standard Translation. But God demonstrates 
his love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Three important facts that show the demonstration of God's love in Christ. The first fact is the Father. The Father proves, shows, demonstrates his love for us. See, Paul, in the Greek language, you can rearrange the order of the words for emphasis. You can't really do that very well in English, but you can do that in Greek. And at the very beginning of what we know as verse 8, Paul puts this word that's translated proves, shows, or demonstrates. And he puts that verb in the present tense. Here's what that means. Every time somebody comes to Jesus and asks Jesus to take away their sins so that they can have a relationship with him. Every time that happens, it again proves that once more, God's love for us is demonstrated. It's shown in Christ. It's been happening for almost 2,000 years and it's gonna happen until Jesus returns. Every time. Someone comes to Jesus. What's more? God's love in Christ is shown. It's demonstrated. Don't ever think God does not care. Because the fact that his son died for us on the cross shows that the father cared and it also shows that Jesus cares. Last week, Lee over here sang a song that I remember we used to sing in choir in the old church, how deep the Father's love for us. We're never going to fully understand the, deep, the depth of God's love. But we get an inkling of it in what we see here. And then, also notice in the verse our condition. We were sinners. We were rebels against God. We were rebels against God, first of all, by inclination. As David writes in Psalm 51, verse 5, after he had been confronted about his sin of murdering Bathsheba's husband and the adultery he had committed with Bathsheba, Uriah's wife, David writes and says, Lord, from birth I was sinful. Bible teachers call that original sin. We got, all have the same problem. We inherited it from Adam and Eve. By inclination, we're sinners, and also by practice, we're sinners. We're rebels against God. That's why in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18, Paul strings together a list of verses from the Old Testament, reminding us at the end that all of us stand condemned before God, not just because of what we are, but also because of what we do. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3 says, we are children of disobedience. It's like, imagine if someone, you know, we just went through, obviously, a pretty stormy time for us, right? In these mountains around us. Imagine somebody stuck up in those mountains when that storm was raging at its worst two, three days ago, and they're lost. But they have a compass, and so they're using their compass 
to try to make a way out of the mountains before they freeze. The only problem is, is that the compass they're using is defective. Because obviously, if you know about compasses, compasses always point toward magnetic north. And normally that works pretty good, but this particular compass has a little piece of iron stuck on the side of it. And so instead of pointing toward magnetic north, the compass needle is always pointing at that piece of iron. It's never giving a true reading. As the person follows it, they get more and more lost until finally they can't go any further. That's our problem. We have busted compasses. We're never going to find our way to safety and to security apart from Christ. And the last thing, Paul simply says in verse 8, Christ died for us. 700 years earlier, Isaiah wrote about Jesus in Isaiah 53, verses 4 to 6. And I want to just read that because this illustrates what it meant for Jesus to die for us. Isaiah 53, beginning at verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's what it means that Jesus died for us. My favorite hymn, and I, I like a lot, I love contemporary music, some of the songs that our praise band teaches us up here, but I also like the hymns too. My favorite hymn, it's called Amazing Love. It's written by Charles Wesley back in the 18th century, and its opening line, among others, is Amazing Love, how can it be that God would die for me. That's what it means that Jesus died for us. A couple days ago, my wife Linda and I went to the Maya theaters and we watched the Jesus Revolution, which by the way, I'd recommend that movie to anybody. That movie is basically telling a pretty factual story about how God moved in the hippie generation in the late 60s, early 70s, and saved many people in a generation that were far away from God. Using a pastor, an old middle-aged pastor named Chuck Smith, and also converting a lost man by the name of Greg Laurie. Now, Greg Laurie has for decades now pastored a large church in Riverside, but in the film, Greg Laurie is a very, very lost, beat-up teenager who doesn't feel he can trust anyone or anything because everything that he's ever trusted in his life, whether it's his screwed-up family or whether it's anything else, nothing has proved trustworthy. 
So at one point in the film, the actor playing Lori basically says, I'm afraid to trust Jesus because I've been disappointed. I've been let down so many times. Eventually, he does come to trust Jesus. And the Lord becomes an anchor for his soul. It's interesting, in the early church, when people were hiding for fear of their lives from the Roman authorities, one of the symbols they would paint in the catacombs or scratch on the catacombs as graffiti was an anchor. Because one of the verses used in Hebrews chapter six to describe Jesus is that he is an anchor for our souls. Now, you may remember Pastor Mark describing last week as he gave his testimony that he was a drug baby, that his parents drug him to church. I was a drug baby too. Although in Mark's case, it was his two parents that ganged up on him to drag him to church. In my case, it was my mother. My father did not become a Christian until I was near the end of college. And that was quite a story in and of itself. But mom would drag me to church and then keep me quiet by constantly feeding me lifesavers, all right? (laughs) And then I remember when I was about 10 or 11 years old, I started listening very carefully to what Pastor Jack Peacock was sharing because he was talking about something that I will call fire insurance. He said that unless we ask Jesus into our heart, not only would we not go to heaven, but we would end up going to hell. And suddenly I became very interested in that because I had heard quite a bit about hell especially from my father. When I would go home from church and the Lakers or the Raiders were losing, that seemed to be one of his favorite words. (laughs) Thank Lord he got saved when he was 55. God did a miracle in his life. And I asked Jesus into my heart because I wanted to go to heaven. Now, frankly, did I understand much beyond that? No. And by the way, that's where it stayed for the next several years. Simply because I really wasn't interested in growing or understanding anything more about the gospel. I got what I wanted. But thankfully, when I got into high school, I began to grow spiritually, and it was because of a youth group, which by the way, that's one reason why I enjoy spending time with our youth group on Wednesday nights because I used to be there many years ago. I had friends in the youth group. I went to places like Hume Lake. I had good leaders like Jim and Diana Lewis and Don and Karen Bertrand. And thankfully, I began to grow in my walk with the Lord. Now, fast forward some 40 years later, I've spent 40 years doing what I do here, teaching God's word. But I need to tell you guys something, and other saints, older saints, would understand the same thing. We never go beyond the gospel. We come to understand it more. We come to appreciate more what Paul is telling us here in these verses in Romans chapter five and elsewhere, but 
not only do we never go beyond the gospel, we never hit the bottom of the gospel. Because although it's a simple truth that Jesus died to save us from our sin and that we can have a relationship with us, it's a truth that we will literally spend all of eternity understanding more and more about. So, a couple of things that are going to happen as we wrap up our service. First of all, don't go anywhere because we are going to have communion. I want to make that clear. That's why we have the tables with the elements around. So, in just a moment, I'm going to invite all of us. And by the way, you have to know the Lord to do this, as past our Elder Don will explain. But I'm going to invite us to participate in communion, but also... I'm going to invite folks to come forward who need prayer. See, there's two responses really to this message, and they both involve coming to Jesus. First of all, if you do not know Jesus as your Savior, that's the most important decision involving the greatest sacrifice you need to deal with. There was a guy in Acts chapter 16, verse 31. He ran a jail in the city of Philippi. He asked Paul and his friend Silas what he needed to do to be saved. And Paul told him, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you and your household will be saved. But for others of us, coming to Jesus means basically coming back to Jesus. Maybe we've wandered away from him. Maybe we're not walking closely like we should. It's time to come home, to come back. Isaiah chapter 55, verses 6 and 7, those verses urge us to return. Return to God. Come back to Him. So, we're going to have a time as Rachel sings for folks to come forward for prayer, but then afterwards, um, pick up the elements, and we are going to celebrate communion. You come as the Lord leads.